Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strange Matters podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that is mysterious, bizarre, and unexplained. I am Sean, and I am joined by my fellow co-host, Eric. What's up, everybody? In this episode, we'll be talking about the strange and mythical legend of Sinocephaly, the phenomenon of humans possessing dog-like heads. These strange creatures have shown up all around the world at different parts of history, dating as far back as the ancient Egyptians and Greeks. Though this may just sound like a bit of a werewolf-type legend, a beast with the characteristics of Sinocephaly doesn't transform or shapeshift in any way like a werewolf. They just happen to typically have the body of a human, but also having a canine head. Yeah, humans with heads of animals is kind of a common theme throughout different mythologies and cultures, like you said, all the way back through history. Egyptian and Greek mythologies, like Sean said, but also Japanese and Chinese cultures, Hindu, and even some medieval and Christian artwork depicts the devil as a humanoid creature with the head of an animal. And Alexander of Macedonia actually wrote to his teacher Aristotle describing encounters with similar creatures when he was invading the East. Uh, But for this episode, we'll specifically be talking about dog heads, or cynocephaly, as Sean mentioned. And cynocephaly actually has a role in modern literature and culture as well. So, for example, the comic book Ghost Rider has some dog-headed men in it, and numerous other fictional books contain their different versions of dog-headed people. Yeah, so these creatures, or species, whatever it is, has basically been in human works for thousands of years. So for this show, we will go over the history of Sinocephaly and the many stories and legends of it throughout the years. And this episode was suggested to us by Packard, one of our supporters on Patreon, who has been doing their own reading up on this fascinating subject. So thanks a lot, Packard, for supporting the podcast and for sharing this idea with us. So first off, we'll talk about a little bit of the ancient history. And the word Sinocephaly itself comes from Old Greek, the word literally translating to dog head. The first records of creatures with these characteristics go as far back as ancient Egyptians and Greeks, as we just mentioned. Several of the old Egyptian gods possessed a dog-like head, which I'm sure many of you listeners are somewhat aware of. You can look up images of artworks of the gods, Wepwewet and Anubis, and they had the body of a man, but the head and ears of what looked like either a dog or a jackal. And though this type of hybrid deity isn't exactly unique, as several of the other gods and legends of Egyptian uh, mythology had different types of animal heads. You had Horus with the head of a hawk, Sekhmet with a lion's head, and the sun god Ra, who had a falcon's head. Yeah, and it's a concept we've mentioned before, but the consistency and regularity that this is recorded across different cultures and, you know, all across the world through different time periods... It almost kind of invokes the idea that this is real in some capacity or another, and that these Sinocephs were an actual race of creatures separate from humans, yet occupying our same planet. Right, yeah, we'll get into a little bit on that further on, but yeah, it's you have to wonder when you have these legends that appear all over the world in different cultures at different times, so they have the same imagination, or perhaps there is something to go off on. So for the ancient Greeks, they were no strangers to these hybrid-type creatures of animal and man either, 
Their mythology includes centaurs, which had the lower body of a horse combined with the upper body of a man, as well as the fearsome minotaur, a beast that had a man's body but possessed the head of a bull. And we discussed the minotaur way back in our Tournament of Monsters episode. So while the Egyptians had drawings of Sinocephaly, the Greeks would take this a step further. They didn't really have artwork showing their deities having dog heads like the Egyptians, but they actually had records of an entire race of people who fit the description instead. The Greek physician Cetesius wrote a report called the Indica, which actually detailed a group of Sinocephaly living in India. Yeah, Cetesius lived around 400 BC, and he actually wrote the following. He said, They speak no language but bark like dogs, and in this manner make themselves understood by each other. Their teeth are larger than those of dogs, their nails like those of these animals, but longer and rounder. They inhabit the mountains as far as the river Indus. Their complexion is swarthy. They are extremely just, like the rest of the Indians with whom they associate. They understand the Indian language, but are unable to converse, only barking and making signs with their hands and fingers by way of reply. They live on raw meat, and they number about 120,000. And in this passage, he describes, he goes on to kind of describe how they don't have any real trade or skill, but rather they just live by hunting and farming animals and trading with the Indians. And they live in caves, but they're actually capable of using bows and spears as weapons. And then Cetesius wraps up the passage by stating they are just and live longer than any other men, 170, sometimes 200 years. So he's not really just talking about like small little tribes or something. He's talking about like big communities, hundreds of thousands of, of people that live for a long time. So it's kind of a hard thing just to make off the top of your head. You'd figure he has to have some kind of basis to go on here. Right. And even though they kind of like have the body of humans and some of the characteristics and mannerisms, they're really not even distantly related to humans, it seems like. Yeah, just a mystery race as of now. Now, another Greek man known as Megasthenes also wrote about coming across this region of dog-headed people in India, saying they lived up in the mountains and communicated to each other in strange barks, just like Cetesius was talking about. He mentions that they were a hunter-based group who wore the skins and pelts of wild animals as they ventured down from the mountains to kill what animals they could find to bring back to their homes. The ancient Libyans also had tales of Sinocephaly creatures inhabiting the borders of their lands, along with a couple other unique and creepy legends such as the Headless Men, or Akephaloi, who, as their name suggests, were humans who had no head, but rather they just had like this big face spread across their chest, so pretty creepy looking, but yeah, apparently there was a lot of weird human-like creatures roaming the lands back in the ancient times. Yeah, I remember coming across that in doing research for this episode, and those creatures were really kind of strange looking in the ancient pictures or paintings that they had of the Akephaloi, but they, it, it was just like their shoulders, just, it was just a straight line from shoulder to shoulder and their faces were just on their chest is really bizarre looking and kind of creepy. Like you said, yeah. On the plus side, they're probably easy to sneak up on just because <laughs> unless true. they have, they, unless they have eyes in their, they have to or, shuffle to, <laughs> they have to shuffle to turn around. Yeah. They'll get old. I guess they can't wear shirts either. Good point. Didn't even think of that. (laughs) 
So, moving on in time, uh, there are accounts of Sinocephaly in medieval history as well. And myths and stories of these dog-headed people appear throughout the Middle Ages and the medieval era. In Christianity, there was a man named St. Christopher who was described and depicted in many texts as a human with the head of a dog. Originally, St. Christopher, prior to becoming a saint, was described as a fierce warrior who was bigger than the average man and came from a tribe of Sinocephaly. He was captured in battle at Cyrenaica and eventually went on to meet Jesus Christ, who turned him from his ways of war, and eventually he, as the story goes, repented and was baptized and eventually took on a human form and became a saint. So it's worth noting that there are multiple images depicted of him having the head of a dog. So it's kind of strange, especially to hear this from like a Christian perspective, because they don't, you know, Christians don't usually take a stance on that sort of weird magical stuff you know i mean it's more based in like mythology yeah not really in christianity which is a little bit more modern yeah i'm guessing it was just them kind of mixing some legends of the time so also in the middle ages the well-known historical explorer and merchant traveler marco polo also wrote about encounters with cynocephali along his journeys he describes a particular group of people as dog-headed barbarians who lived on the island of Angamanian. Being the expert trader, Polo remarked that they were quite adept at growing spices, but the dog-headed people were notoriously cruel and difficult to work with. Marco Polo wrote about them saying, The people are without a king and are idolaters, and no better than wild beasts. And I assure you, all the men of this island of Angamanian have heads like dogs, and teeth and eyes likewise. In fact, in the face, they are just like big mastiff dogs. They are a most cruel generation and eat everybody that they can catch, if not of their own race. Marco Polo actually isn't even the only explorer that came across this strange race of creatures. Christopher Columbus, as I'm sure we're all familiar with, upon landing in what's now modern-day Haiti, writes of creatures the locals refer to as canines with one eye on the forehead and the head of a dog a race that was known to eat humans. Columbus did, however, write in a letter to the queen that he was skeptical of these claims. He stated, In these islands I have so far found no human monstrosities as many expected. Nevertheless, the tales were taken seriously by others, such as Diego Velazquez, a Spanish governor of Hispaniola, who in 1519 instructed conquistador Hernan Cortes before an expedition to Mexico that he was to keep on the lookout for people with huge ears and even some with the faces of dogs. So it's a little disturbing to me that both of these um, explorers were concerned about the same sort of ferocious creatures that they might encounter. Right, yeah, I guess the, the region just had some kind of legend about it that had gotten back to these European explorers that they were all wary of. Furthermore, going back to Polo real quick, uh, Marco Polo's words on this actually probably holds more weight than other explorers that we've talked about, like the ones Eric just mentioned and others like Giovanni de Payne and Odoric of Portinone, as Polo was usually more accurate and he was more easy to dismiss most of the legends and myths of the lands that his contemporaries wrote about. 
Also, Polo does make a clear distinction on stories that he heard from locals rather than the ones that he actually witnessed himself. So while it's easy to think of these writings of these men traveling to exotic lands and meeting these wild beast men as imagination or fiction, perhaps there is something based more in reality that inspired multiple European travelers that we've talked about to write about these men who looked and acted like dogs in the eastern portions of Asia and the new lands of America. So you're suggesting that... um... Because we know that Marco Polo was a little more skeptical of some of these claims and a little less eager to give in to the the myths of the land, you're suggesting that because of that, it might add a little bit more credibility to his mention of these creatures' existence. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he by the time like he did his travels, he was already aware of other myths and legends, and as he traveled to these places a lot of times he figured out that they were just that, just myths. So he wrote about the legends that the people talk about, but there's really nothing more than that. But it would appear in this case, from his account, it almost sounds like he did eyewitness these Sinocephaly-type people and saw them himself over just, you know, the local babble of myths and legends. So I think it might lend a little bit more credence that something, there's some weird people going on there. I don't know if they were actually dog-headed people, or just they looked a lot different than the locals at the time. But yeah, as, as you were talking about, I think that that gives him a little bit more legitimacy that he did dispel other myths, but did write about this one. Now, creatures of Sinocephaly also appear in Turkish mythology with the race of people known as Itbarak. The Itbarak, which name basically just means a dark, shaggy dog, were a group of dog-headed men who lived somewhere in Russia and who fought with the Turks. The conflict was told in the Aguz Kagan narratives, a collection of stories about the legendary Khan of the Turks, Aguz. As a legend goes, Aguz attempted to invade the land of these dog-headed people, but failed and was forced to retreat. The narratives describe the Itbarak in detail. In the northwestern Asia, there was Itbarak. Turks were far away from them in the Middle Asia. They had the body of a man, head of a dog. Their color was dark, like the black devil. Their women was pretty and didn't run away from the Turks. They were medicated. You couldn't spear them. So they sound like a uh, formidable group that obviously the Turks couldn't beat at the time. Uh, Fortunately for the hero of the story, 17 years after his defeat, Aguz managed to reinvade the Itbarak, this time coming out victorious and killing off all these strange group of people. What is interesting about the Itbarak is that there are also tales from several other European countries that similarly describe groups of dog-headed men that lived in parts of Russia and Finland. So you have several different stories from several different cultures, but all the dog-headed like people are talking about are all grouped in the similar region. Now, obviously, it seems far-fetched to believe that this group of dog-headed people actually exist. But the more likely explanation is that these different societies and cultures perhaps heard of the legend from each other and it kind of just borrowed from each other's stories unless they are in fact talking about the same group of people that each of them encountered at different points in time. Now, we talked about a little bit of the history of Sinocephaly, so let's just go over some of the origins. It's hard to pinpoint the exact origins of Sinocephaly or these dog-headed people to just one point in time or just from one culture. As we've already been discussing this episode, these types of creatures have been springing up all around the world at all different times. 
And one possible reason for the legend of the beast is for them to act as a type of metaphor for the unknown people or foreigners. It's noted that in antiquity, mentions of Sinocephaly are not overly threatening or evil like a typical monster from myth, but rather seem more like a dramatic description for barbarians or underdeveloped people. You can almost imagine the more civilized ancient Greeks and Egyptians coming across these small tribes or groups of people along their outer borders, speaking in a strange guttural language, wearing the fur of animals. It could be tales of these bizarre creatures that couldn't understand the major languages of the time and seemed feral in their attitude could easily be turned into legends of dog-headed people in a few generations, as most stories were passed down orally back in the day. It probably wouldn't be the only time in history that a more civilized society likened their enemies or outsiders as animals rather than fellow humans. Yeah, no, I think that's a possibility. Um, I agree that could probably explain a lot of what's being seen in some of the other cultures, but the Egyptians in particular, as you mentioned, the dog-headed Egyptian Anubis was actually worshipped as a god. So it doesn't seem like there would be a real association there um, between those that they're worshiping and those who are just kind of like outcast, barbarian, you know, nomadic societies. Um, perhaps when someone approached a certain like rank in Egyptian society, they received like a sort of ceremonial headdress that was supposed to be a dog head, and that's how they were just depicted in their hieroglyphs. Um, but I just kind of say this to contrast what you were saying about it being outsiders, because to the Egyptians, it almost seemed like it was a sign of royalty or sovereignty. Yeah, that's true. And they did have deities with several different heads. So maybe they did kind of represent different groups, maybe, or just different ideas or different groups of people around there. So that is a possibility. As I mentioned before, though, the idea for this dog headed people probably came up quite often throughout time. It's a bit humorous that a number of travelers went looking in strange and foreign lands searching for such beast. But once they got there, instead they just heard the locals talking about similar myths coming from the very lands that the explorers came from themselves. So basically you have these two groups of people talking about these dog-headed groups, and they just happen to be in each other's lands. So again, to me, this just suggests that many cultures of the world have used sinocephaly and other such monsters and abomination of nature to kind of represent foreigners or just be the subject of urban legends throughout the ages. So that kind of, we've already kind of touched on some, some theories that might go along with what these Sinocephaly creatures really are. Cause I think it would be a little far fetched for us to just believe based on the evidence we have so far that there were literally at one point in time human bodies with dog heads attached to them. That doesn't really seem to make sense to me. Right. Um, just my knee-jerk reaction, not not ruling it out. Um, but one theory I did want to talk about comes from a famous cryptozoologist by the name of Bernard Hevelmans, and he wrote in his book called On the Track of Unknown Animals about these famous dog-headed encounters. And he believes that many of them may actually be related sightings of a particular species of lemur called the injury lemur, which, as far as lemurs go, these 
grow to be just a massive size, sometimes up to like three feet in height. Um, so I, I think three feet, that's like taller than my son, a lot shorter than me. Yeah, but, but I got to remember back in the day, it wasn't like the average height, like five feet or something, five and a half feet. Tr- so yeah, true, true. They would be yeah. in proportion to the modern man. They would be quite a bit bigger. And yeah, and Hevelman states that it's the largest of the lemurs known today and is extraordinarily looks like a little man with a dog's head. Three feet high and with no tail but an inconspicuous stump, the injuries is astonishingly like a man in outline. Like the other lemurs or half monkeys, it has a fine and pointed muzzle, which makes its head look more like a fox's or a dog's. Um, interestingly, some African tribes believe these lemurs to be twisted descendants of humans who were punished for not wanting to be part of the tribe. And personally, I can definitely see a pretty strong resemblance given its massive size and the face that it has. It really does look like a dog face more so than a lemur. So I think there's some plausibility to this explanation. However, it it still it still seems to be a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, if we were talking about a cryptid creature that was just kind of seen like, you know, little groups or just one at a time, I could probably buy this. But as we've mentioned, you got to remember that a lot of these ancient historians and explorers actually talked about meeting civilizations of these type of people, like in the thousands. So it's not like one or a few of these lemurs running across the prairie or something. They're actually talking about you know, they're civilized, they have their hunters and all that. So I kind of, I don't see how you can get these lemurs that sort of look like little humans with dog heads, but then get that twisted into making tales about, you know, entire civilizations out of these things and turn them into dog headed men. So if this was, if we were just talking about individual creatures, I could see this, but not entire races of people. Yeah. And so it, essentially could have contributed to the rise of this myth, but it probably wasn't the exact origin. So I, I kind of agree with you. And that applies to sort of the second theory is that these cynocephaly were actually like baboons or some other sort of primate. And if you think about a baboon head, it does have one of those long pointed snouts that makes it look a little bit more like a dog. And at the same time, it still stands up on its hind legs. Um, it's capable of using like tools and stuff. Um, a little bit bigger than these lemurs. So I, I think you know the baboons are another plausible theory, but I still don't think, even with their use of tools, that this would be enough to come up with that theory that there's like a full civilization of them that they're using spears and bows and arrows and hunting and farming and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. I could see this a little bit more than the previous one, just because baboons, I think they just inherently look a little bit more like man than these kind of smaller lemurs. I don't know exactly about about baboons, but I I assume they have some big, large family groups and stuff and a couple dozen that a little bit, you got a little bit of a, a civilization there, but yeah, as you as you were saying, it's kind of hard to go from a dozen baboons to writing about a city of these people, a hundred thousands living in the mountains. Yeah, as you were saying, as with all these kind of primate creatures, they can exist in troops of you know 
60, 100, 200 groups of baboons. So, I mean, I could, again, I could see baboons being a little bit more likely in my own head. Another thing that we also kind of touched on was that maybe this was just a race of indigenous natives who were animal pelts that still had the like animal head attached to it and they were simply mistaken for cynocephaly. Um, so like if you picture a Native American Indian with a wolf pelt that he's wearing over his back and his shoulders and and the head of the wolf is actually coming up over the Indian's head. That's kind of how I picture it. I think that could be probably one of the most commonly mistaken things because basically you have a tribe of natives we'll say native american indians for now and they're literally living in caves they're using spears and bows and arrows but they all just have animal pelts over their head um and to an outsider who's listening to these people communicate with each other you know any noise they can make that they don't understand their language could sound like barks and stuff like that yeah, I could see that in, and not just Native Americans, but just these kind of cultures spread throughout the world that these more advanced nations come across. And as you said, they can't understand the languages. It just kind of sounds like barking or something to them. And perhaps you do have these groups who wear these animal furs around them or animal pelts. Uh, perhaps you have like entire groups of like warriors or something who wear jackal heads on their heads just as a you know, type of ceremonial decoration or that's just their uniform. And you get these outsiders that look at them. And then, as you said, they go and kind of exaggerate the the tale. And then that gets told again and again. And then in a few years, you have this story of these groups of people who have dog heads instead of just having these animal heads on for decoration. Yeah. And from the natives perspective it could even be used it could even be done intentionally for the purpose of striking fear into their enemies before they you know attack or something like that right yeah because we had the the tale the the turkish tale of these dog-headed people defeating the turkish army so maybe that they just had these reputation for being fearsome and these dog-headed monsters that just kind of scared them in before they even fought yeah i mean it could be something that they're using to their advantage to kind of manipulate them. So they're intentionally trying to appear as cynocephaly, so people with dog heads. All right. Yeah, I, could, I could definitely see that as a strategy. Anyways, to kind of summarize, there's, you know, some of these accounts that we talked about were very specific in their description of the cynocephaly. Um, a lot of them, however, were secondhand accounts. So, for example, you know, Marco Polo hearing it from the, the natives or the locals. But, you know, nonetheless, they were very specific descriptions of people or of creatures with very human characteristics. So it's kind of something that's hard for us to just ignore. Yeah, right. Again, we were talking about, you know, they grew spices, they had organized hunting parties and stuff. So it's kind of hard to go from either baboons or something to talking about these semi-advanced civilizations that had a set culture. But, they just happen to be humans that have dog heads. So it, it's just weird. It's just kind of amazing that you have all these different accounts from all these historians and travelers from all over the world about these people who have the characteristics of cynocephaly. 
Right. So as with any legend that's so popular to pervade multiple continents and cultures, stories of Sinocephaly extend into modern day. And there are several movies about dog-like creatures and numerous pieces of literature that I mentioned earlier, and even a few legends and sightings that have recently occurred. Yeah, two legends here in the United States that could be related to Sinocephaly are the Michigan Dogman and the Beast of Bray Road. And as the name implies, the Michigan Dogman is a legendary cryptid which has alleged sightings in the northern states for many years, possibly even centuries. As with many urban legends, details of the Dogman depend on which version of the story you hear, but most have it either as a large man with the head of a dog or just a huge dog that has the ability to run upright on its hind legs. And if you'd like to hear more about the Dogman, you can check out our American Monsters episode that was published last summer. And then the other one, the Beast of Bray Road, is another crypta that roams the north, this time in the state of Wisconsin. This beast has been described as another animal that stands upright, looking kind of like a mixture of a man and a bear and a wolf with a distinctive canine head. And if you'd like to hear a more detailed history of the Beast of Bray Road, I'd recommend checking out the Not Alone podcast, which did a great episode covering the creature and is one of the newest members of the Dark Myths Collective that we are a part of. And it's interesting to me that we have these two separate old legends of these walking dog-like beasts or creatures here in the United States, both pretty close to each other as the states of Michigan and Wisconsin are neighbors. So I couldn't really find a direct link between the two cryptid legends of the Dogman and the Beast of Bray Road, but it's so interesting to think that perhaps the two mythical beasts are related in some way, or at least the origin stories may have influenced each other. It's also worth reiterating that these legends overlap significantly with that of the legends of werewolves or lichens. And the more, it just seems to me like the more people try and embellish the story or whatever it is that they saw, the bigger and hairier the creatures become. So to contrast this with the ancient reports of Cynocephaly where they were, again, somewhat sophisticated, civilized creatures that are oftentimes depicted wearing clothes. And they were sort of, they were just orderly instead of these mindless, bloodthirsty werewolves that we usually see in modern times. Yeah, that's a good point. I think if I had to pick, you know, a particular theory or origin story, I think as you were talking about, it's probably just a group of native people that a more advanced civilization come across that they didn't exactly know too much about. And maybe in their reports, they embellished a little bit. And then throughout the decades and centuries, those stories got embellished more and more until you have these, you know, werewolf type monsters. And it all just kind of originated from a group of humans, but different humans than the uh, more civilized cultures we're used to dealing with. And again, as we said, maybe they just like to wear uh, dog heads on them to uh, as decoration or something. So Mm -hmm. ceremonial like headdresses. Yeah. But it was just, as I was researching this episode, there was so much crossover between the Sinocephaly and the werewolves. But in reality, they're completely separate entities. Right. Yeah, so at the end of the day, this is just a legend or myth or whatever have you that has been going on for centuries, uh, millennia really, dating back thousands of years to ancient Greeks and Egyptians that apparently they either worship these type of people or they wrote reports about coming across them and... These Sinocephaly have just kind of persisted through the ages. 
So that wraps up this episode of the Strange Matters podcast. Thank you all for listening. If you have your own thoughts on Sinocephaly or your own stories or legends that you've heard about that you'd like to share with us, you can write to us at our email, strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. You can check out our website where you can listen and download all of our episodes, strangematterspodcast.com. And you can also check us out on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you're listening to us on iTunes, please feel free to leave us a rating and review. And for those of you who enjoy the podcast and would like to support us, um, we have our Patreon t- Patreon page, patreon.com slash strangematters. Please feel free to check us out and give us a donation. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Until the next episode of the Strange Matters podcast. Take care, everybody. See ya. <laughs>